Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Jasper Mutsaerts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With Soul Kitchen, I interview people that inspire me. From TED speakers to social entrepreneurs, from activists to artists, from dreamers to seekers, from business people to spiritual teachers. With Soul Kitchen, I empower people to live their quest. And each episode contains a recipe for life. What is your quest? So, um, welcome friends to a new episode of the Soul Kitchen. Today, I'm talking with Eric Admides, who is a entrepreneur and a teacher in the field of public speaking and personal growth. I met him on my screen because I was a Mind Valley student and I've taken a wildfit course on how you can improve your relationship with food, how you can improve your health and your fitness. And I've also seen him on stage at Mind Valley University where he talked about public speaking. And today I want to know everything about public speaking how he got into it and um, yeah, what what we can learn about it. So it's great to see you today. How are you doing? I'm great. It's really good to be here. And uh, I, I, yeah, I've, I've just been on, I, I was just back in Estonia now for a few weeks um, and I'm very glad to be home. Were you doing an academy there? Uh, no, I actually was just there for family, Christmas vacation, that kind of stuff. Um, it was just, you know, just two weeks of snow and Christmas. Ah, excellent. Because do you live in Estonia or do you live somewhere else? Well, uh, you know, really the Dominican Republic is my sort of home, but we keep a place in uh, in Italian as well. Ah, I see. So you have two, uh, two places. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm really curious in, you're active in the field of public speaking, but how did you get into this field? And maybe you can share a bit about your background and your adventure so far. You know, it, it, it is an interesting question because it, there isn't really one answer. It's not like I, you know, it's not like there was this one moment where it happened. Uh, the truth is that as a kid, I was really terrified of public speaking, um, it, like really phobic of it. And and then one day I, I was working in a sales job and um, and we were doing direct sales, like knocking on doors and selling to people in their houses. And, and it was Canada, so it was cold. And And then one day my boss offered me the chance to get involved in recruiting. And what that meant was that, you know, we would run ads in the local papers every Monday. And then I would take all these calls from people on the Monday and I would book them in for a group interview on Tuesday. And so there would be between 50 and 100 people that would come in on a Tuesday and I would have to do this big presentation for them. And and then I would choose about half of them and then I would spend the rest of the week training them. And when I agreed to take this job, I didn't really think about the fact that it involved public speaking. So it was horrible. Like it was really horrible, but I had to do it every single week, every single week, every single week, like again and again and again. And of course, as I was doing that, I was, you know, developing skills and learning what worked and what didn't work and so on. And so I think in, in a sense, that was my first real, you know, uh, stepping into public speaking, but it would still be maybe, you know, 20 years later before I would overcome my fears and actually become a speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it took you 20 years. And is public speaking something that someone taught you in, in some education system or is it missing? 
Well, I, I think it's completely missing from just about every education system. I think that, that, that you know, people that are graduating now from, say, university, they might be learning a lot of really great academic information. But if, if they aren't taught proper rhetoric, if they aren't, dis, if, if they aren't um, schooled in, in d- debate technique and how to put together a presentation, and uh, this is the hard part, is that many times our school system not only doesn't teach public speaking, but it actually makes public speaking harder and scarier than it needs to be. So many people enter school perfectly capable of communicating. They leave school educated and terrified of communicating. And that's, I don't think that's ideal. Yeah, I, I agree. It's something that could be a specific kind of uh, class at school, but it but it's not. Yeah. I'm curious, in your career, you've worked in Hollywood, you've worked in military research, you've worked in medical advices. Um, was public speaking uh, important in each of these fields or it has been more important in, in some more than others? Well, I, I would say this, that um, uh, public speaking is important in, uh, in my, at least I believe, in just about any field that you would go into. So there are some of my careers that took that, that I was involved in, say, before I learned to public speak and didn't then use it. And, and I think I could have been significantly more successful. So for example, in my, my first business, we sold mobile computing and wireless networking technologies and that kind of stuff. But I would never think to go speak at a conference or you know put on an education event or something like that. And as successful as that business was, I now feel that that business could have been five or 10 times more successful if I had been really comfortable and effective at public speaking. But then after that, I mean, every single business I've been involved with, every single role that I've undertaken has either come about because of my public speaking and or been magnified because I had become comfortable and, com- and competent at, at presenting. Mm, I see. And um, uh, yeah, if you talk about uh, fears that you have to overcome, if I look at myself, I have a lot of experience in facilitating groups. I have experience in interviewing and I'm attracted by public speakers, but I haven't done it a lot yet. So my comfort zone is this facilitation. So I got triggered by your um, the fact that you said you're one talk away from accelerating your career. And yeah. it triggered me to think, like, what's that one talk for me? But I still have a bit of a fear kind of to choose the topic or to really step into it. I stay a bit in my comfort zone of facilitation. So can you share a bit about the, the concept of the one talk away and, and fears that people like myself might have to go there? Sure. So what I realized as I look back over my life is that there was uh, there were individual talks that I gave that caused a significant upgrade in the opportunities around me. So, for example, when I first got involved in speaking, I was mostly speaking about health because that was a passion of mine. And then one day I was invited by an organization to come and do a talk in London, England. I was living in the west of England at the time. And, and I got there and I thought that I was there to speak about health. But it turned out they really wanted me to speak about business. All that happened was is that I had my tech company and I sold it and they wanted me to come and tell the story about how I started in my living room and, and, and grew it over the period of time and then sold it. And I was like, I wasn't prepared for that talk at all because I thought I was there to talk about health. And so I ended up um, uh, doing the talk and it went so very well that at the end they said that there'd be like 15 minutes of Q and a with the audience, but that 15 minutes turned into more than an hour. And I was just answering all these questions and 
And I realized how much fun I had doing it. But more than that, something magical happened. And that is that uh, I, first of all, realized how much I enjoyed it. For example, somebody would ask me a question that they had a lot of pain or stress about. And I could see that when I gave them the answer, their stress evaporated. Like it was like now they had a solution. And it was like, not just, I'd done lots of mentoring, so I knew that feeling, but now it was mentoring like 80 people at one time. And it was so rewarding. And then also a guy walked up to me at that talk and he said, Hey, could you deliver that same talk in Singapore next week? Mm. Well, first of all, I didn't plan the damn talk and I don't even remember what I said, but sure, I'll figure it out. And off to Singapore I went. And that, so that one talk launched my business speaking career and, and it was just, it was just one talk delivered at the right time, the right way. And it, 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 it just expanded everything. And I've had a few of those in my life. And so I believe that no matter what somebody's job, career or business is, they are only ever one well-constructed, one well-delivered talk away from a major upgrade, a major breakthrough in their business. Maybe it's about raising money. Maybe it's about selling more product or licensing deals, or maybe it's, you know, there, there's any number, a book deal, movie deal there's countless stories of people who have delivered one talk that changed their whole life. Simon Sinek, Brené Brown, even Barack Obama, even Barack Obama, his, his wife says in her book that there was one talk that he gave when he was involved in state level politics in, in Chicago and in Illinois. And he gave one talk and that talk got the press asking him different questions. They started asking him about national policy and the way she puts it in her book, it's like that one talk was the reason he became president. One talk. Uh, of course, many things had to follow, but that one talk opened the doors. Yeah. And how do you start, um, if you want to define what that one talk is about, like where do my inner reflection start? Well, you know, the ultimate talk begins with your own, your own passion, your own, your own excitement, your own mission. You know, that's, that's, that's where that is. So, for example, when I gave that one talk on business, I'd kind of forgotten about my passion for startups and such because I'd sold my business and I wasn't really in it anymore. But as I was telling the story, it brought back the memories, it brought back the emotion. And, and because I delivered that talk with, like, real authentic, authentic vulnerability, like just me exploring my own memories, it, it was very attractive for the audience. So the thing is, is that a lot of people, when, I, when they hear from me that they're one talk away, they start going out there and going, well, what is the one talk that I could deliver? That would change the <laughs> like, well, no, what is the one talk that is inside of you that lights you on fire that, that you, that you feel needs to be out in the world? And, and, you know, that talk is probably the one. And, you know, so if you're very lucky, then that talk you want to deliver happens to be topical or happens to be in sync with what's going on in society in that moment. So for example, uh, when I started, um, I, I did a talk once about evolutionary biology and, and the underpinning of biohacking and health and all that kind of stuff. I did this talk about 10 years ago. And there was a man in the room who happens to be the founder of Mind Valley, And he saw that talk. And all of a sudden he's like, wow, we got to put your, your program on the Mind Valley platform. And because of that now, tens of thousands of people around the world have gone through that program that, that wouldn't have been introduced to it if, if it wasn't for him. Yeah, so one thing leads to the, the other, right? So I, I've worked a lot with social entrepreneurs with an organization called the Impact Hub, helping them with business strategy. And uh, I was in Costa Rica recently at a conference where I'm now, and I met a university professor from Japan. And we started talking about social entrepreneurship. And then he said, oh, I want you to do a video lecture for my students. So now I'm going to be a guest lecturer at Okoyama University in Japan. Okay. So that for me is a, is a starting point. 
Yeah, well, so talking about uh, talking about passion. So I'm working with one entrepreneur. His name is uh, Tim, and he wants to make transport more sustainable. So he wants to replace uh, plane travel partly by trained travel. Yeah, and he recently uh, joined your uh, speakers academy in uh, Tallinn. I think with uh, forty or fifty people. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, uh, what do you do with people when they join your academy? Um, if you can share anything about it. Well, you know, the, 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 the core process of the academy is not so much about teaching public speaking. It's about unleashing the communicator that's already inside you. And, and this is a very important distinction because, um, look, if I, wanna, if I want to become, if you want to become a professional golfer, well, we're both probably a little too old for that now. <laughs> of course, there is the senior tour. So maybe we could say, look, let's go play the senior tour. Well, how good a golfer are you now? Then you figure out, I need a good coach. I need a good caddy. And I'm going to go have to practice six, seven, eight hours a day, every single day for the next 10 years. And then maybe then I could get myself onto the senior tour, maybe. But you see, the reason is that ultimately with learning golf, you're having to teach your body a series of unnatural movements. You're having to teach your body a series of things that are not hard-coded already into the DNA of humans. So you've got to learn all this stuff and then you got to practice it and you got to develop the neurology or muscle memory to make it happen. On the other hand, public speaking is something that is both instinctual and hardwired. It's already inside people. In fact, what happens is, is that for most of us, as a result of parents making the odd unconscious comment and parent and teacher and, and, and an education system that doesn't really understand uh, um, meaning generation. And so what ends up happening is, is that children that are very comfortable communicators at two and three years old, by the time they get to five and six and seven years old, they start displaying signs of shyness or signs of fear of public speaking. And then that just gets worse and worse and worse. So what I'm saying is, is that the skill is already inside. Over the course of my speaking academy, my goal is to unleash that. It's to let the it's it's to help dissolve the the ego shield that stops some someone from being a really truly vulnerable speaker. And then of course, you know, we also do teach them skills and strategies that help them develop to a world class level. But the transformation level at that event is unlike anything I've seen. It's it's really powerful. In fact, at the event you're talking about now in Tallinn, uh, we had a number of finalists. We do a, a big public event at the end, and there's a live audience, and we're live streaming it all over the world. And the feedback from the audience was, because we had 15 finalists, the feedback from the audience was, well, I've never been to a conference ever in my life where all 15 presenters held my attention, ever, until now. And here's what they don't know, the, particip the, the, the people watching, is they haven't been there for the last five days. So many of them assume that these were already professional speakers when they showed up. No, in fact, three of them, I had to do phobia interventions with them because they were so terrified five days ago. And now they're, they're delivering from the heart. So that's what that program's about. And it, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's a serious privilege to deliver it. That's amazing. And you touch on the theme delivering from the heart, uh, which I know is powerful when you're a speaker. Uh, but how do you access that? Or what are some of the, uh, the pitfalls of not speaking from your heart? Well, you know, in, in my opinion, uh, humans... Uh, have a natural instinct and that natural instinct is um, to be attracted to authenticity. And that instinct is so strong that you would rather have an authentic enemy than an inauthentic friend. It's a very important thing to understand. You see, the thing is that an authentic enemy is predictable. 
because when somebody is true to themselves, then once you've watched them long enough, you know how they act and their and, and the authenticity in a sense creates certainty for you. But if you have an inauthentic friend, what that means is they're unpredictable. It means you don't know when they're going to let you down. You don't know when they're going to hurt you, or maybe if they're even actually a secret enemy. So if somebody walks on stage and they deliver not from the heart, they deliver with a lack of authenticity, they deliver without that, that, that layer, then the audience automatically picks up that they're putting in, that they're, that they're acting, that they're putting on a personality and that makes them inauthentic and that makes them unattractive. I understand. So can, the audience can kind of pick up on that. They can sense that. And um, talking about the audience, um, when I listened to your um, performance in Tallinn, you mentioned that people have different ways of picking up on communication. So some are more sound focused, some are more verbal focused. I forgot exactly what you mentioned, uh, but can you remember me uh, what these differences are about? Sure. This is a commonly discussed thing in neurolinguistics and in psychology and, and generally in communication, advertising, marketing, anywhere where people are concerned with having a good uh, communication co uh, uh, connection. So the general idea is that there are some people who naturally uh, communicate more quickly and more loudly and more easily and what have you. And then there's at the other end of the spectrum, there's people who are more inclined towards um um, communicating through their sense of feeling. And so they, they tend to speak, you know, more slowly and they have longer pauses while they check how they feel about the words they're about to say. And, you know, in the middle, there are people who are more uh, regular in their cadence. They have a more uh, consistent sort of cadence in their delivery and their tone of voice is more in the average level. And the audience is made up of people all over that spectrum. It's not so simple as to say that there's three types of people. It's that all people exist on that spectrum somewhere. Some people are louder. Some people are even louder and faster. And some people are quieter. And some people are even more quiet. And so one of the challenges you have as a speaker is recognizing that your audience will have all of those people in the audience. So if you, if you walk on stage and you're like, you know, just like total high energy motivational speaker guy, then yeah, <laughs> that are more visual in their communication, that are that are that are more naturally loud and more naturally fast, they'll really like the presentation. But the people who like slower, calmer, more deliberate speech, they won't like it. And so as a speaker, you have to learn the skills of voice modulation to maintain a sense of rapport with everyone that's in the room. I see. So you have to kind of um, make a combination of elements in your uh, speech. And at the same time, you will work with different audiences like entrepreneurs, business people, students, politicians. So how do you kind of shape your speech according to these subtle differences in audience? Well, I think the first thing is you shape it by making sure that your presentation touches, uh, that, you know, uh, touches on each of those ranges. That at times you might be telling a story with a lot of passion and speed and, and, and loudness. And then every now and again, you might. Slow right down, create a pause and give them an opportunity to think. And so that's the first thing is that voice modulation, you know, being able to use that. And then the second thing is um, to use something that, that, you know, you might call sensory acuity. And that is to pay attention to what's going on with the audience, to have a, a, a sense of empathetic connection with them. So, you know, for example, if you notice some people picking up their phones to look at Facebook or Instagram or something, or if you notice people like sort of yawning or, or nodding off, 
And what that probably tells you is you need to increase the energy a little. And so that might be a good time to like increase your voice and punch more passion into it to reattract <laughs> those people that you've disengaged with. And, and, you know, so I, I think those are the main two things to pay attention to. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole skill set about that, but knowing that the audience has people all over that spectrum means that you really should consider using that entire spectrum in your deliveries. And by the way, you listen, Jasper, I know you've been through this. I know you went to school and I know you had teachers that may as well have been hypnotists because within 10 minutes of their class, you probably felt like falling asleep. And what I can guess is that most <laughs> of those people spoke like this. In today's lesson on the geographic conditions of the Netherlands, we're going to talk about <laughs> the ocean. We uh, use to pump the water out. And I mean, you know, nobody remembers that lesson. Nobody's engaged by it. They're falling asleep. And, and, Unfortunately for most of us, the vast majority of the public speaking we witnessed as children was the worst public speaking ever. I, I see. Yeah, now there's definitely uh, some bad examples in, uh, in school uh, that are presented to us. And uh, talking about examples, I'm always curious uh, to get to the source of wisdom. And a lot of wisdom you've probably accumulated through your own life experiences. But you maybe also have had some teachers or people that have inspired you. So who has been people that inspire you in the field of public speaking? You know, I'd have to say uh, my dad initially, like, you know, my, my dad is a, a very powerful storyteller and I grew up, um, you know, certainly from about the age of 11 or 12, listening to him speak on quite a regular basis. And I think that probably inspired me a little uh, or a lot. And then um, later on, I got involved in sales. And of course, in sales, we would often go to sales meetings. And 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 those the, the people that I worked with then really inspired me. I was like, wow, they seem so free to communicate. And then that got me reading books and listening back then to cassette tapes by people like uh, Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn and Brian Tracy and Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey and all these types of people. And then I really got intrigued because some of, I mean, Wayne Dyer, like what an incredible storyteller, John Gray from the Mars Venus. I mean, what an incredible storyteller. And so as I started observing the way they did things, I began to, um, I guess, sort of model that technique. I started looking at the various techniques that people use and said, wow, that is inspiring. And plus the impact they were having, you know, the impact they're having. Like when you when you uh, uh, when you become a really effective teacher, it means you can now teach 10 people, 100 people, 1000 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people in it in a single session. Yeah. So you can increase the number of people that you you impact. Yeah. And one of the people that you mentioned that had an influence on you is your dad. Uh, not surprisingly, fathers often have an influence on you. And on your website, you also mentioned something like resolve the past. So why um, is, let's say, your dad or your childhood or your past, why do you mention that specifically on your website? And how is that probably related to public speaking? It's, it's incredibly related. Um, so there's a concept that I, I, I developed and I'm, I'm currently writing about um, and, and I've spoken about. There's videos on YouTube and such, but it's called the, the hindsight window. And the hindsight window is based on an English expression, uh, hindsight is 2020. In other words, when you look back at the past, you can always evaluate the past and see it more clearly. And, um, and so what I propose is this, is that the more anger and shame and guilt and resentment that a person feels about the events of their past, 
the more anxiety, fear, and apprehension they will feel about their future. In other words, if the road has been bumpy so far, it's going to be bumpy in the future. On the other hand, if one can reconcile the events of their past and see them not as sharp and flat notes, but rather see them as part of the perfect symphony of your existence, then what happens is you start to be able to find gratitude for even things that were painful and difficult at the time. And the more gratitude and appreciation you have for the events of your past, the more faith you have in your future and the events of your future. And so as a speaker, this is a really big deal because a lot of times our fear of public speaking relates to meanings that we created about things in the past. And if we can relax or release those meanings, if we can reframe those meanings, then we can actually move forward and face any audience with a higher degree of faith and optimism. And can you share something about your own past that you had to reconcile with? Oh, I mean, there's, there's, there's been some, I, I can give you a really good example. When I was 18 years old, somebody lit me on fire. And um, I was working, it was an, I was working an industrial job and I got, I got um, gasoline all over my arm. And this guy, it was a stupid joke. And he, he licked, he flicked the lighter and caught me on fire. And I was very lucky that my entire body didn't go up because I had gas all over my uniform. Luckily only the arm caught on fire. But what happened was, is that I now ended up having to spend six weeks in the hospital. I had to have skin removed from my legs to rebuild my arm for, uh, you know, at one point they told me I would never use my hand again. It was the most unbelievably painful experience of my life. But here's the, the thing. I'm really grateful that it happened. I, I really am grateful that it happened. It, it gave me a depth of experience. I've been able to talk to burn victims about their recovery. I've been able to talk to children about the dangers of playing with fire, even though that isn't how it happened to me. I, I, I also developed a, a depth of character and understanding. And incidentally, years later, years later, I was uh, riding a motorcycle in Thailand and I was riding my motorcycle to a nature reserve. And it was like an hour's drive down the highway. So we're driving very fast, an hour down the highway, and it's very, very hot. And then the bike sits in the sun for three hours. And then we drive all the way home. And, and then as I get off the bike, the tailpipe touches my leg and burns me all the way through the skin right away. And now I'm in Thailand and I, and I, and I've got this very, very serious second and third degree burn on my leg. And I know exactly what to do. So I go straight away to a pharmacy, like four minutes away. I walk straight in the pharmacy and I, I know to order saline solution. Of course, the, even the pharmacist doesn't know this, but saline solution is just the same thing people use for the contact lenses. So even though she didn't think of it as a first aid thing, I knew that from my time in the hospital with my burns. And so I was able to use the saline solution to cool the wound down, to clean it out, to get all the stuff out of it, to wrap it up, to bandage it correctly. And I, the very next day I was flying home. I was living in England at the time. I flew home to England, went straight to the ER when I got there. And when I got there, they told them what happened. And then they, they undid the dressing. And I'm not kidding you. This is exactly what they said. You were in Thailand? I said, yeah. And they go, this is the best burn dressing we have ever seen coming out of Thailand. Mm, wow. I, I did it myself. Now, I no comment on, I don't know anything about Thailand emergency procedures. It's just, that's what the, what, that's what they told me in the ER. But the point is, is that uh, in a, in, in many, many ways, my life was improved by that accident. Now I wouldn't wish that accident on you. I wouldn't wish that accident on one of my children. It was incredibly painful, but today I don't have any anger toward the guy who lit me on fire. I don't have any resentment at all 
I have nothing. I have I have gratitude that that event happened to me. I, I'm gratitude that it wasn't worse, and I and and I have gratitude for the richness that it added into my life. I see. So some experience in the past uh, are important to reconcile, but also can can lead you to direction of things that you can uh, speak about to other people, or that you have or that you have a certain authority in. I would just simply say this: that. Any event in your life that causes an emotional response is innately valuable. Now, you might not see the value in the moment, but if you're having an emotional response to it, it's valuable. That's that's beautiful. So if you want to look for this one talk, you can either look at your passion, as you mentioned earlier, but you can also look back like what experiences triggers emotional responses. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes your best stories will come from there. I have a bit of um, a different question. So I've been on this world trip for two years. Uh, I left Amsterdam. I needed a change of scenery and it has been very valuable. And I've kind of followed the flow of events and people that came to me. So I joined Mind Valley. Then I meet you at the screen. Now I'm interviewing you. But also there's many other examples where I kind of just follow what comes to me. And on your website, you also uh, mentioned that you've been on a two-year world trip at some point and you were teaching entrepreneurship. I'm curious what that experience has brought to you. Well, you know, I, I, what happened for me is that I, I, I had been living in England for about 10 years and I sold my company and, um, and I went through something that I would never have predicted. Of course, now it's obvious, but I wouldn't have predicted it at the time. And that was I went through a low grade depression. Um, I didn't realize how many of my emotional needs were being met by the company, by my employees, by the challenge, by the success and everything else. And so I, I, I found myself like in my apartment, kind of sad and a little depressed and not knowing what to do with my life. I had money, I had freedom, but I had no passion or no direction. You know, I didn't know what to do. And, and then a friend of mine said, well, you like to travel. I go, yeah. And then he said, well, you know, you can buy you can buy a single plane ticket from Star Alliance that can fly you all the way around the world. I was like, what? And so he, he showed me this app. And, and, and even back then, there was this, it's even better now, but there was this app where you could put all the places you wanted to visit and it would draw a map and it would create the route for you. And then you would just buy this one plane ticket and then you would travel around the world. I, I'm going to try that. And I found out about this on Tuesday and on Wednesday, I booked the whole trip and I left on Thursday, like that fast. And immediately, I, and I didn't go with any project in mind. I didn't go with any mission in mind. I just went with, you know, I just, I needed, it's so cliched, but I needed to find myself. I need to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I needed to figure out what was next. And so the first, I, I did six of those trips around the world, six full like trips around the world over a two year period. Mm -hmm. The first two of them were purely recreational, visiting family, stopping. I, I, I would stop at the Gili Islands in, in, in uh, Indonesia and stay for a month at a time. I, I went, I, I spent huge amounts of time in Thailand. Uh, I went to Africa. Like I, I really just observed myself out there in the world. 
But then what happened was one day, some that, that guy asked me to do that talk in London. And while I was on that trip, that's how I ended up becoming a business speaker. Like I was just on the trip and they're like, well, why don't you go to Singapore? I was like, all right, I'll go. And so my recreational <laughs> two years turned into a professional, uh, you know, launching of my speaking career. I see. So you're kind of um, uh, want to figure out what's next. And then you you stumbled into this, uh, this new career. And um, uh, another topic you touch upon is uh, business freedom. You had some money, you had some freedom. And business freedom is also one of the things that you've been teaching and speaking about. And people that listen to this podcast might also have a longing for more uh, freedom. So can you share a bit about uh, that, what, what it's about and what you're teaching there? Sure. Let's start with this. Um, I really believe that entrepreneurship uh, at its core is the ultimate expression of personal freedom if it's practiced correctly. So the trouble is, is that the majority of people, the vast majority of people who become entrepreneurs don't practice it correctly. So instead of it becoming this incredible expression of freedom, it becomes something else. It becomes almost like a, a prison. And, and, and in fact, uh, four out of five businesses won't make it to their fifth anniversary. So it's a very, very low success rate. But if you play the game properly, if you really understand entrepreneurship, and there's a very big difference between self-employed and entrepreneurship. If you are self-employed, then basically what you've done is you've created a job for yourself. No problem. If you stop working, the business stops, right? It's not, you don't own an entity. You don't really own a, a functioning, you know, a profitable entity. On the other hand, if you become a business owner, you start a company and you work your way out of that company. And one day you can stand away and look and the company operates smoothly, whether you're there or not. Now that's real entrepreneurship. And that's ultimately what we teach at Business Freedom is how to start a company that you can turn into an asset that supports your lifestyle. So for some people, they want to start a company, but they end up doing a lot of jobs they hate doing. Well, again, that's more self-employment. But then the next level is what if you created a company where you got to spend 90% of your time doing what you love? That is already a huge life upgrade. Most people in the world, even today, don't get to do that. And then the next level is, what if you started a company that was operating so smoothly and profitably that you didn't even need to be there, that it was truly an asset? And that is sort of the ultimate expression of, of, of business freedom, of entrepreneurial freedom. I see. So, I see. So entrepreneurial freedom is really about creating a company uh, where at some point you can um, uh, you can leave and it's still a functioning entity and then you have your freedom. But in that transition period of leaving the business, there's also some things that you need to take care of, right? You need to find a successor. You need to have important communication. And since you have done all these different things, like what are your recommendations for that transition where you transition out, but the entity still functions? Well, I, I think the first thing to understand is I, I, the way I look at it is, is that there's, in a sense, sort of three levels of, of business freedom. There's no freedom because you're first building your business and you're doing all kinds of jobs inside the business. So, so then the next level of freedom is where you are spending most of your time doing things that you really love. So let's talk about the first entrepreneur. The first entrepreneur starts their business, but they have to do their own accounting. They have to take out the garbage. They have to make the sales calls. They have to do the customer service. They have to do everything. So they're doing many jobs and many of them they don't like doing. Maybe they just hate doing their own accounting work, but they're doing it. 
So, of course, the first step is to move toward uh, building your business in a way where you get to do what you love most of the time. So what does that mean? It means resigning from the various positions that you don't really want to be in anymore. So if you don't want to be the accountant anymore, it means getting yourself out of there. And there are some steps, like, for example, proceduralizing it creating templates for it, developing systems for it, so that when you do hire somebody to do that job, even part-time or something, because you'll be amazed that a part-time professional bookkeeper probably does a better job of you doing it, right? And so now you bring that person in, but if you've got good templates and procedures and organization, then it's really easy to train them and it's very easy for them to get the job done for you. And so step-by-step, you remove yourself from the various jobs that you don't enjoy. And, and, And then... The next, and that means you've reached the first level of business freedom where you arrive at work every day knowing that you get to, if you're a creative entrepreneur, all you're going to do is come up with new ideas and you're going to do your writing or your performing or business planning and strategy because that's what you want to focus on, inventing, creating. Um, and, and, and But then the next level of business freedom is where you even replace yourself so that being at work is completely optional. And again, what does that take? It means systems, proceduralizations, templates, and it means really good training, and it means really good recruiting and hiring the right people that you can trust. And then it means making sure that they're trained to a level where you can trust them to do their job, or in the case of finally hiring somebody to manage the business, that you can really trust them to manage the business on your behalf. I see. So there's different levels of freedom and as a especially as a first-time entrepreneur, you start doing all the tasks and step-by-step step, you start outsourcing them, you create create systems and you make good agreements. But now you're an experienced entrepreneur. So I'm curious, when you launch a new business like Speaker Nation, for instance, do you follow the same process or you, you kind of skip a few steps because you can immediately hire people and are kind of free from the beginning? Um, it, it's not that you can skip any of the steps. It's just that you can move through them more quickly. Ah, I see. You know, you, you, you can't skip them. You, you've got to do each stage. If you skip them, then you're going to create pain. In fact, I remember working with this. Uh, he, he, he actually wasn't even a client of mine. His, uh, his girlfriend was a friend of mine. And we were all sitting having dinner one night. And he asked me the same question you asked me. And so he asked me what I thought he should do. And I kind of described it. And I said, well, and he was a documentary filmmaker. And I said, well, it seems to me that the first level of business freedom would be where you get to focus on making documentary films and not having to do the accounting and the day-to-day and the hiring and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, yeah, he seemed, he says, I started this whole thing and now I barely ever get to be behind the camera. And I go, well, that's going to be the first step is you move toward hiring a general manager or a managing director or somebody who can manage that business on a day-to-day basis. So you can focus your time on, on, on shooting. And, and I kind of described loosely how you go about doing that and so forth. Bumped into him about a year later funny thing happened. He goes, I'm out of business. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, and it's your fault. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. How is it my fault? And he goes, well, I did what you said. I hired a managing director to run the business. I, I, I gave them signing authority and got them running the business. And I went off to South America to make a documentary film. And by the time I came back, the business was over. And I said, that's not what I told you to do. I said, did you write up procedures? No. Did you create templates? No. Did you create reports, regular weekly and monthly reports? No. So you skipped all that and you went right to hiring somebody and then you didn't even apprentice them. And then you wonder why you went out of business. And he goes, okay, yeah, I I see the problem. (laughs) So he skipped a few steps and then he was out of business. So I I get your point. So you can't, as an experienced entrepreneur, you can't skip them, but you can move to them uh, through uh, more quickly. And of course you can hire 
you, you know, once you understand what it is you're doing, like here, here's one thing. Your business needs everything proceduralized. Anything that you do in the business needs to be documented and proceduralized. That just needs to be the way it is. Now, if you're a complete startup and you don't have a lot of capital, then you're probably going to have to do most of that documentation yourself. Now, there are other ways you could you could get a student to come in for work experience and interview you. And, 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 you know, and there are ways to do it that aren't very expensive. But of course, if you've got startup capital, you can go hire somebody to do that for you. But it still has to be done. It's not that you can skip the steps. It's that you can find ways to do it faster. I see. Now, that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Another question I have around public speaking. Um, it was interesting, by the way, to touch upon this topic because I feel for people listening, um, entrepreneurs, uh, public speaking is an important topic, but also creating freedom is also an important topic. And they're also maybe connected. Um, so public speaking, of course, is when you stay on stage and you speak to an audience. But nowadays, we also have social media uh, where you can share videos to an audience. Yeah. Do you also consider that public speaking or is it only it is. when you're on stage? Of course it is. Anytime that you are saying words that will be listened to by the public, you are public speaking. I see. So it's also on uh, on, on social media. Now I have a question around that because um, I am relatively active on LinkedIn. I think once a week I try to share something and I always share a bit personal things that I've experienced or people that I've met. But I haven't done videos yet. So what is a reason maybe to do videos and what are some fears to overcome? And yeah. Well, videos are more engaging than words. And, and one way to think of it is, is that if something's simply written, then the audience has to pull the ideas out of the, out of the written words. There's no emotion. There's no delivery. Um, you know, it's, and, and you're competing against so many distractions these days. A video has the full spectrum capacity of communicating with speed and tone of voice and passion and all that kind of stuff. So a video is going to be more engaging. When I created our Wild Fit program, I could have written a diet book. I knew what it took to help people transform their relationship with food, lose weight, reverse their diabetes. I knew all that. But, but, but I knew that if I wrote it as a book, that those words would never have the same power as multimedia. And so instead of writing a book, I recorded the program and I recorded it as video. And to this day, over 50,000 people have gone through those programs in 100 countries around the world. I, I don't think a book would have been as effective. I, do, I just don't think so. And so the same thing now with social media. The fact is you can write a post. You can write a post and it might be like, you know, yeah. it might be somewhat engaging somebody to read it. Uh -huh. um, but what's going to be more engaging is that you actually connect with them and you have eye contact with them and they hear your voice. And so videos are, in my opinion, far more um, uh, effective than text only. Right. So videos are um, uh, more engaging for the reason that you can communicate emotion more easily and yeah. you can communicate more ideas uh, and your audience doesn't have to, to analyze this. Um, so what are some recommendations for when you use videos as, as a public speaking tool? Well, there's a bunch of different ways that that happens. One happening, one is that you are at an event and you're speaking to a live audience, but it's being video captured. Some of my most successful videos online are exactly like that. I was speaking at a conference somewhere and the, uh, you know, I was speaking at a conference somewhere and they recorded it and they put it online. Um, there's not much I can change about that. You know, I'm actually speaking for a live audience. It gets captured. But when you're talking, say, to a camera, 
you know, and you're, you're not talking to an audience, there are some differences. Like, you know, you've, you'll probably remember from when you went through WildFit, there were times when I would want to make a real pointer or, or have you, and I would like lean in and mm-hmm. lean in and look at the camera and I would use the camera like it was a person. So there's some behavioral things that I think are different when you're making videos. Also, and this is a little more complicated, but if you're making videos for, um, you know, for, for online distribution, particularly if you're expecting to go onto YouTube or something like that, then one of the things that you, yes. Yeah. One of the things that you want to consider is YouTube being the second largest search engine in the world owned by the largest search engine in the world is, um, is looking at every word that you say and transcribing your talks and turning it into search text. So one of the things you might want to do before making a video is do some SEO analysis on what people are searching for, you know, and, and like, so for example, let's say I was going to do a video on, on releasing weight uh, through WildFit and through changing your relationship with food. Then what I might want to do is go do some SEO research and find out what are people typing into Google? What are they looking for? And maybe they're looking for rapid weight loss, or maybe they're looking for lose weight for Christmas, or maybe they're looking for uh, healthy holiday snacks. So now as I'm delivering my talk, what I might do is I might say those things in the talk because I know that that gives them a better chance of coming up when people search. Like, for example, this video between you and I, I presume you'll put it on YouTube. It'll go on YouTube. And now if somebody types in rapid weight loss, there's a chance this video will come up because I said those words. In fact, now that I said rapid weight loss three times, it's (laughs) And then I said, healthy Christmas recipes. And so you, by embedding those search terms into your presentation, you increase the chances of coming up in search. I see. So you can think about the, the, the keywords that people are looking for on YouTube. And yeah. then when you upload the, these videos, they become more, more relevant. And yeah. that's fascinating. I thought about it um, uh, with Google keywords, but I actually didn't think about it with YouTube because it hasn't been in my... my Basically the same thing. Yeah, it hasn't been in my my focus. Remember, every talk is transcribed and turned into text, and that text is fed to Google. So yeah. there it is. Yeah. So if you look at your different activities, like the public speaking, the Speakers Nation, the business freedom, the wild fit, they're all connected to the theme of behavioral change. Yeah. And that's something you're you're interested in. So what are some of your key takeaways on within the field of behavioral change? And if people that listen to this podcast want to change a certain behavior, like where do they start or what's important? Okay. Well, that, that's a whole interview all by itself, but I'll give some, I'll give some, uh, some, some clues. Um, one of the uh, things that, that really can help people is having a, a very clear, uh, a very clear association to the result that they want. Um, the, the way I think about this is that there are, potential events in your future that are so powerfully attractive to you that if you can really push your consciousness into them and really associate to them and believe in them, then they will pull you through any challenge. And we call those things in our quantum shift program, we call those things success tableaus. It's like a, it's like a single frame or a, or a small slideshow of very specific moments that, that communicate your results. As an example, somebody comes in and does wild fit and, you know, you can say, well, what is your goal? I want to lose 20 pounds or I want to be, I want to feel younger. I want to be out of pain. But what you really want to do is distill it down to a moment that they really want to experience. So for example, I was working with a client once and he says, you know, I I know what the moment is. I said, what is it? He says, I see myself on the floor playing with my grandchildren flexibly 
and then standing back up again under my own power. Now, that's a far more emotional idea than losing 20 pounds. It's, mm. it's, so, so if people can create a really strong success tableau for the new behavior they want, if they can really, and, and you know, I can't, I, while I may have created this methodology or I created this sort of thought process, it's not a new idea. I mean, Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech, he describes a success tableau right in the speech. He says, his I have a dream. I have a dream of little black boys and girls and little white boys and girls playing together on the streets. Like that's, that, that's a very different thing than, you know, I'm looking for social justice and equality and, and workspace equality. Like those are all facts. Great. But that postcard for him, that picture for him was the emotional thing that was able to draw him through everything. Even as he knew they were plotting to assassinate him, he knew that. And yet he was so pulled ahead by his own vision. So that's one strategy that we think is really powerful. The opposite strategy is what we call a rock bottom tableau. And these things work really well hand in hand. And a rock bottom tableau is that same thing. It's not some esoteric vague idea of a future that you don't want to experience it's a specific snapshot in time of your potential future that scares you so badly that you'll change i see so instead of uh, making it practical like i want to lose 20 kilos you look at the ideal state in the future or rock bottom scenario that has a more a higher level of emotion connected yeah uh, uh, yeah and it's not that you can't have those other sort of um you know, like specific measurable goals or whatever. Sure. I want to release this weight or I want to, it's, it's not that you can't have those ideas or those goals. It's that uh, you can have those, but, uh, but a, a very specific tableau, a very specific frame that on one side attracts you to the future you want. And on the other side repels you from the future you don't want. Those things are powerful. They will, they'll hold you on course. I see that. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so with public speaking, people can do the same. You can imagine like, I want to give a TED talk or I want to be on a certain stage. Yeah. That's a certain end, uh, end goal. Yeah. But you see, even that, like, you know, that's still very goal oriented. Instead, it's a matter of saying to somebody like, why do they even want to be doing that? Most people that want to do a TED talk, for example, it's not that they want to stand on a stage with the word TED on it. Mm-hmm. It's that they want to have some impact, right? They, there's an impact that they want to have. Like in my case, when I get on stage and I'm talking about wild fit, what I know, what I know in my heart is there are people in that audience that are right now type two diabetic. And I know three months later, they won't be. And I know that three months later, they'll, many of them will have lost 20 or 30 pounds, or I know some of them will get rid of the pain and the inflammation that have been in their hands. I know that. And so when I'm, let's say I get up in the morning and there's, you know, there's stuff that could be distracting me or getting in the way. I just push myself out to that moment when I know those people are going to say those things to me every single day, literally every single day, I get messages on my phone from people who tell me how our programs have completely transformed their life. So those snapshots are more important to me than, Oh, I want to, I want to stand in front of 500 people at a Ted talk. Yeah, that's all fine and good. But to me, that's a stepping stone. Now for someone else standing on the stage at a TED talk is the success tableau for them. And that's okay at the, at whatever level of evolution they're at, that might be the thing that's drawing them forward. I understand, but it's really more about the emotional feeling or the impact uh, that, that they might want to have. Yeah. It's whatever, it's whatever on the success. T- I'll be there soon. It's what you, it, it's what you, um, it, it's, it's from a success tableau perspective. It's a snapshot in time 
that has such emotional connection for you that it will draw you through any challenges, help you overcome any obstacles. And on the rock bottom tableau, it's this snapshot in time. Like, oh, I, you know what? I was working with this client and we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, this type of transformation and so on. And he said, I had an exact experience like that. I said, what happened? He goes, well, my daughter, who was about Zoe's age at the time, like her about six or seven years old, walked up to him. He was a smoker, walked up to him and said, daddy, I wish you'd quit smoking. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, like, sure. Why? And she goes, cause I just, I really want you to walk me down the aisle when I get married. Ah, uh, I see. So that's touching. That was his last ever cigarette. Yeah. Right yeah. in that moment. Now it's not, it's not that moment for everybody, but it was that moment for him. He suddenly saw that and he's like, he, and, and by the way, his rock bottom tableau was created instantly in the same moment because I asked him, he said, I said, well, what, what about a rock bottom tableau? And he goes, I saw myself watching my daughter getting married without me there. Uh, that's, that's touching. There I you go. That. that example, it makes it, makes it very clear. Yeah. Well, you've shared a lot of wisdom on public speaking. If someone is listening and they want to engage uh, with you or join one of your events or retreats, can you share practically what's on the agenda? Sure. I mean, you know, we, we do we do three of our uh, speaking academy programs a year. We try to do them around the world. So North America, Europe, and then Asia. And, and they can go to speakernation.com to find out about that. Plus, we have tons of free resources. And we actually currently have a free membership for people that want to go and learn a little more about public speaking and have online practice groups and all that kind of stuff. So speakernation.com is the best place to find out about that. Plus, I manage my own Instagram account. I, I, I do my very best to reply to people when they send me questions and stuff. And, and, and so if, if, if people want to connect with me on Instagram, that's great too. Thank you for sharing that. And then my last question in the soul kitchen, people can find recipes for, for life. And this episode is, is about public speaking. So if you summarize all your experience and knowledge, what is kind of the recipe for public speaking that you want to share with the listener? I, I think I'd say this, that, um, the, the, uh, really have a thought about your life experiences and realize that even though they might not feel that valuable to you because you already have them to somebody else, they might be infinitely valuable. And, and if you can begin to look at the events of your past through the, through, through the value that those events can create for other people, then you may well find the message or messages that you feel most passionate about that you want to share with the world. In my case, what happened was I, I, I looked at my life and I found that, uh, you know, I, 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 I gave myself the gift of, of um, financial freedom through business. I gave myself the gift of overcoming my fears of public speaking. And I gave myself the ultimate gift. And that was a great relationship with food and a healthy body, and which is not what I was living in at the time. And, 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 and the funny thing is, is that those things for me, they were done. I didn't think of them as valuable anymore until my friends and, and people around me started asking me about them. And then I realized they were those things, while not that valuable to me anymore, because I already solved those problems, those solutions were infinitely valuable to other people. If you can find those Rembrandts in the attic, as, as we call them in the Speaking Academy, if you can find those, those diamonds that are in your life experience and you can match them up with the right audience, you can have a really significant impact. Well, thank you for sharing that recipe. I truly enjoyed uh, uh, this episode. I wish you uh, a lot of fun and good luck on all your adventures. And uh, maybe we see you again at Mind Valley or at your academy. Sounds good. Thanks very much. Have a good day, uh, Eric.